KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. As COVID cases skyrocket, San Diegans are urged to stay strictly safe. We need every San Diegan to make an individual decision and determination uh, that we're going to come together and fight this thing. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The Port of San Diego revises its construction plans for 2021. What we're really trying to do with this Port Master Plan update is create something for everyone who enjoys San Diego Bay. Scripps starts researching the effects of climate change in the deep ocean and some pandemic turkey tips for first-time Thanksgiving cooks. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. On Sunday, San Diego reported over 1,000 newly diagnosed cases of coronavirus. That number, 1,087, is a record daily total for the county, but it marked the fifth consecutive day that more than 600 new coronavirus cases were reported by the county. These high numbers do not indicate that San Diego will be able to move out of the purple tier anytime soon. And for public health officials, the numbers are an indication that San Diegans may not be doing all they can to stop the spread of the virus. Yesterday, County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher pleaded with the public to wear masks and observe social distancing, even as the upcoming holiday season poses more challenges to maintaining strict adherence to those guidelines. Joining me is San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. And Supervisor Fletcher, welcome. Thank you for having me. Are these numbers surprising to you? Uh, They're concerning. Uh, I think a lot of us were concerned we would see an increase. I think uh, it, what is what is surprising is the severity of the scope of increase. We went from 300 cases a day to 400 to 600 to 1,000, and it's likely to continue to increase. And, and that really is the alarming call to action. How is the county monitoring adherence to COVID safety measures by local businesses in particular? And I ask that question because, for instance, there are multiple gyms that are already telling their members they won't be shutting down indoor operations. So has the county visited any of those businesses already and started the process of enforcement? Uh, We have. Uh, We have, and we're in the process of issuing a series of cease and desist and public health closure notices. Uh, But one of the one of the most challenging and frustrating things of COVID is that there's only there are limitations to what you can enforce. Uh, We have individual law enforcement jurisdictions and we have cities uh, such as El Cajon that have have proudly proclaimed they will not enforce any public health orders uh, or hold anyone accountable for egregious or blatant violations. And so we're going to continue to do everything we can within our power But the reality is our effectiveness in responding to COVID is community-wide. There is community-wide spread, and that's where we need every San Diego to make an individual decision and determination uh, that we're going to come together and fight this thing, despite all of our political differences and partisan differences and ideological differences. 
whether you want business to be open or you want to save lives, we do the exact same thing and that slow the spread. And so my hope is uh, the overwhelming majority of San Diegans will will hear that message, will receive that message, and will really come together in a, in a spirit of service uh, to help us slow the count and benefit our whole county. Now, according to county numbers, 34% of cases in San Diego result from household exposure. Now, that's about three times as many cases that come from exposure in bars and restaurants. So my question is, how is it possible? And it's not a rhetorical one. I really would like to know, how is it possible to be more careful at home? Well, that's where everyone has to make an individual determination. For example, Thanksgiving is certainly uh, one of my favorite holidays, and, and we have a large family and an extended family, and we really look forward to getting together. We've made the decision as a family, we're only going to celebrate with our household, uh, the individuals that we live with every day. And it's not every Thanksgiving, it's just right now. It's just this time. And those are the decisions that, that everyone has to make uh, around what can you do to slow the spread, and that is limiting contact with individuals who uh, do not live with you on a regular basis. Uh, utilizing face coverings, you know, moving things outdoors. Um, and and those, those spreads that are happening in individual households are, are, are virtually impossible to enforce other than getting the community to buy in that this is something we have to do and we have to do it together um, and we have to all do it. And so my hope is uh, that we can really see uh, more vigilance and more intentionality in, in what everyone is doing so we can bend this curve. There's a protest today by businesses who are impacted by the new shutdown orders, the, the purple tier. What do you say to those businesses who are opposed to what some call a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, I, I, look, I, none of us want to be doing the things that we're doing. Uh, none of us want to have closures or restrictions or requirements. Um, but the, the unfortunate reality of the situation we face is that if we don't take action, uh, to limit those higher risk settings, those settings that are, are more likely to, to create super spreading events and increasing cases, uh, and we overwhelm our healthcare system, uh, the economic negative impact will be far greater uh, than the impact we face now. And so what you're faced with is a series of choosing the least bad option. Uh, no one is suggesting that, that what we're doing is good or positive and certainly not what we wanna do, but we don't have a choice. When you look around the country, you see states and regions that are, that are getting their healthcare system to the point of collapse. And, and you have to take action early. COVID has a significant delay factor. There's a delay between uh, a, an unhealthy gathering and when those cases happen, there's a delay of, of three to three weeks plus between that case and hospitalization. There's a delay between hospitalization and death. And so it forces us now, we have all the warning signals, uh, all the reason to be concerned. We have to take this action uh, for the betterment of the entire county. And so my heart hurts for them. I feel terrible for them. We want to provide help and assistance, uh, but we have to look out for the entire county. And this is a moment we have to come together and get through this. Now, we heard good news last week about the Pfizer vaccine. Today, we hear more good news about the effectiveness of the Moderna vaccine in clinical trials. What is your hope about when coronavirus vaccines may become available to San Diegans? I've been really encouraged by the news. Uh, there was some uncertainty about how effective these might be. And I think this is very encouraging and should tell all of us that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we don't know exactly when those vaccines will start being distributed. We're working tirelessly to put in place plans, and procedures to be able to distribute them equitably and, and, and help us move forward. Uh, but I still think that we're all looking at first quarter of next year. And that should give us hope and encouragement that what we're going through now is, is not gonna be forever. Uh, but between now and the end of the year, 
uh, we really have to focus uh, to slow the spread and get it down uh, so that we can remain in a stable position while we await that vaccine. Uh, and while we look forward uh, with joy to the day at which we are through this, uh, that day is not here yet. Uh, it's certainly on the horizon, but, but we really have to deal with where we are and, and what we have right now. I've been speaking with San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. Thank you very much. Thank you. For the past seven years, the Port of San Diego has been working on an update of its master plan to set the vision for future development along the 34 miles of waterfront from San Diego and Coronado, south through Chula Vista, National City and Imperial Beach. The last master plan was adopted in 1981, nearly 40 years ago, and much is changing along San Diego Bay. The port is soliciting public comment on its port master plan update through tomorrow. So here to talk about what changes could be in the works is Leslie Nishihira, Planning Director for the Port District. Leslie, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Good morning. So now, what's the vision for the Port District for the near future regarding how things will change for you know commercial property and public space and aesthetics in general? Well, what we're really trying to do with this Port Master Plan update is create something for everyone who enjoys San Diego Bay. Um, the master plan is essentially the port's water and land use law, and the intention of an updated port master plan, which we often refer to as the future of the port, is to serve as the primary tool for balancing environmental, economic, and community interests along the San Diego Bay waterfront for the next 30 years. Originally, the master plan would have allowed hundreds of, of new hotel rooms along the waterfront, but I understand there were objections. What was the original plan and, and how has it changed? Um, you're correct. We received an extensive amount of community feedback. So after extensive conversations with communities around San Diego Bay, the port determined that added density was more appropriately located in our urban centers, specifically uh, in the planning district of Shelter Island next to the Point Loma area, uh, 1,600 rooms were initially proposed, and now we are not advancing any new hotel rooms for that area. Similarly, in the Coronado Planning Districts, we initially had 710 total hotel rooms, and this revised draft has uh, reduced those rooms down to uh, no increases. A big reduction in hotel rooms, but there will be quite a lot of new hotel rooms on the North Embarcadero, right? Uh, correct. On uh, the area or the proposed redevelopment between Ash and uh, the 1220 Pacific Highway property just around B Street, uh, what we initially had proposed was 2,000 hotel rooms. Uh, in response to that community feedback, however, we've reduced uh, the amount of proposed hotel rooms to be a total of 1,550 rooms. So it's a net increase of 950 rooms over what exists today. Now in the revised plan, we're also advancing strict height limitations along with building setback requirements to make sure that we preserve view corridors and make access to the waterfront very easy. And why the delay in the, in the long planned redevelopment of Seaport Village and the Central Embarcadero? What's happening there? Well, um, the Central Embarcadero has long been recognized as one of our most important and significant areas of Port Tidelands. The Central Embarcadero subdistrict is essentially the Seaport Village area, uh, which extends roughly from the G Street Mole area around the bend to where the Hyatt Hotel property begins. 
So uh, we want to make sure that that area is planned in a holistic and integrated manner. And there's still a significant amount of planning work that needs to be coordinated, uh, most notably with the State Lands Commission. Uh, so we've determined that the best approach for redeveloping this area is to process it as a separate amendment to the Port Master Plan, independent of the PMPU process. So soon. Okay. Now, what about public space? I understand that the plan calls for including Navy Pier as a recreational open space and adding more green space between the waterfront park by the county buildings there and the waterfront. When might that happen? So uh, the Portmaster plan update requires a number of milestones to achieve before elements of the plan can be implemented. The plan needs to go through the California Environmental Quality Act process as well as processing with the California Coastal Commission for their certification. So once that occurs, which we estimate will be uh, towards the end of 2022, we'll be able to begin implementing specific improvements, such as the conversion of Navy Pier to a park area with some parking allowed, uh, along with the creation of additional public space along the waterfront in the North Embarcadero area. Specifically, we have a concept called the window to the bay, uh, which is to create new opportunities for the public to access the waterfront and provide uh, enhanced park areas for all Californians and visitors. The window to the bay uh, concept will add more green space, as, as you mentioned, and a waterfront destination just north of the new Portside Pier restaurant and the Maritime Museum. The concept includes a large public pier with public docking opportunities and would create synergies with the iconic county waterfront park right across the street. Nice. So now the master plan calls for the reconfiguration of the southern part of Harbor Drive. That's further south, though. Uh, tell us about that and, and what's, what's the goal? So we refer to that as the Harbor Drive 2.0 project, which is one of the first major achievements of the port master plan update process. Uh, through smart planning, the port will reduce truck traffic impacts by redesigning the industrial section of Harbor Drive using intelligent transportation systems while adding protected bike lanes, beautification, and other requirements. Uh, this is really a, a way to address community concerns about truck traffic while also making uh, maritime cargo uh, hauling more efficient between our two terminals. And public input on this draft update ends on Tuesday, but will there be chances for public input in the future? Absolutely. So uh, through the entire California Environmental Quality Act process, uh, there will be opportunities for public participation and commenting. Uh, we estimate putting out the draft program EIR for the PMPU next summer, uh, and that will be subject to a review and comment period. Uh, and also when we present that EIR to our board, the public will have the opportunity to make public comment and participate in that hearing uh, before our board of port commissioners, as well as through the entire processing with the California Coastal Commission. We've been speaking with Leslie Nishihira, Planning Director for the Port District. Leslie, thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. To submit feedback to the port and review the revised draft, you can go to portofsandiego.org slash PMPU, and feedback will be accepted through Tuesday, November the 17th.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John with Maureen Cavanaugh. When Joe Biden takes office as president in January, he'll inherit the cornerstone of Donald Trump's legacy in the Southwest, hundreds of miles of new border wall blocking off the region's deserts at the international boundary with Mexico. From our Fronteras desks in both countries, KJZZ reporters Michel Marisco and Kendall Blust have this report. In downtown Nogales, the Trump administration draped the existing border wall in coils of gleaming razor wire two years ago. Nogales, Arizona Mayor Art Garino isn't optimistic that the incoming Biden administration will take it down. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know you know how the government is. You know, once they put something up, it's very seldom comes down. And, that was uh, just one small border wall project. Along the entire U.S.-Mexico border, the Trump administration has put in place about 400 miles of new 30-foot-high border wall. ACLU attorney Dror Layden leads that suit, and he's waiting to see if the new president will withdraw the petition to the court. And if he doesn't... Once Biden comes in and becomes the president, we've already sued him. And the lawsuit will be against Biden as to what is to be done with these illegal wall sections. And then he and his administration are going to need to decide whether they want to defend um, this flagrantly unlawful thing that Trump did or whether they want to work with border communities and and environmental groups to, to redress it. Candidate Biden has said that he will stop wall construction, but he never said that he would tear down the new border wall. We need to also look at ports of entry and figure out ways to open up more channels. Becky Galbeca heads the Southern Border Communities Coalition in Tucson. She hopes the incoming administration will focus on humane policies rather than those that drive people to enter the U.S. through remote parts of the desert. Now, Kendall Blust picks up the story in Nermosil. Many people in Mexico share their northern neighbors' concerns over the harms U.S. border wall construction has caused in the region, severing indigenous lands, destroying sacred sites, and devastating the natural environment. And they want building to stop. But Gerardo Carrion, who heads the nonprofit Naturalia Ace in Sonora, says simply halting completion of the wall won't be enough to counteract significant and potentially irreparable damage to the environment on both sides of the border. Instead, he says the Biden administration should tear down existing sections of border wall in critical areas where it cuts across rivers and wildlife corridors for jaguars, black bears, ocelots, and other endangered species. But Duncan Wood with the D.C.-based think tank the Wilson Center rejects the possibility that the incoming president will take that step. There's no way that they're going to pull down a barrier that has been put in place on the U.S. 
Mexico border. He says there's little political will to undo what U.S. tax dollars have already paid for, and he thinks Mexico will continue to face diplomatic pressure to participate in migration enforcement within its own borders, as it did under the Obama-Biden administration. What the Trump administration did was to take that up several levels. But Wood says U.S.-Mexico relations during a Biden presidency likely won't be as narrowly focused on migration as they have been for the last four years. I think that we will see a more nuanced bilateral relationship. One that puts greater emphasis on trade, human rights, corruption, and climate change. And that gives Carillon hope. He says a U.S. government invested in fighting climate change and protecting natural resources might listen to conservation scientists studying the impacts of the wall on both sides of the border and heed their calls to knock it down and begin restoration efforts. At least, he hopes so. I'm Kendall Blust in Hermosillo. President-elect Joe Biden has pledged to end the Trump administration's travel ban on several Muslim-majority nations, including Iran. The impact could be big here in California, home to the largest Iranian community in the country. KQED's Farida Javala Romero spoke with an Iranian-American doctor near Fresno who's tried for years to bring his father to live with him. In March, Armendari was consumed with worry. His father, also a doctor, got coronavirus from a patient in Tehran and was hospitalized. He's 81 years old, and that's the biggest risk factor for COVID-19. But Derry lives in Visalia, more than 7,000 miles away. That distance compounded his fear. He couldn't just go care for his dad. Uh, that was a very tough time. It was very scary Darrow and his sister are both naturalized U.S. citizens. Five years ago, they applied for green cards for their parents. Their mother's was approved in 2016, but their father's got stuck in limbo after President Donald Trump issued the travel ban during his first days in office. It's been a burden, a huge burden on our shoulders, on our minds. Yeah, it's been very difficult for all of us. Trump invoked national security to bar travel to the U.S. for most people from some Muslim-majority nations. But critics challenged the ban in court as discriminatory and racist. An amended version didn't go into full effect until December 2017, after the Supreme Court allowed it to move forward. And earlier this year, Trump added more African and Asian nations, for a total of 13 the harm that it has done to the reputation of the country and to the people and communities it's impacted is so immeasurable. Max Wilson is an attorney with the National Immigration Law Center, which sued to end the travel ban. He says the impact goes way beyond the more than 41,000 visas the U.S. State Department has denied under the ban. Every child that you keep separate from their parent, every person who misses a wedding and every person who misses a job opportunity, those don't just hurt the person involved. They hurt the people that would benefit from being reunited with their family members. They hurt the the places that these people would end up working. Biden could undo the travel ban just the way Trump started it, with an executive order. That would trigger a reversal at the State Department, Customs and Border Protection, and other federal agencies. Abed Ayub, with the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, says if Biden ends the travel ban as promised, 
It would signal the start of a new era on how this country treats immigrants, including protecting dreamers and reuniting separated migrant families. By overturning the ban, which is the lowest hanging fruit, he can signal to the communities that, you know what, I'm, I take immigration seriously. I take your concerns seriously. Dr. Armand Derry says getting rid of the ban would lift a weight off his family and many others, and it would help ease the feeling the travel ban gave him that he wasn't welcome in America. It's going to be a huge relief for people who are affected by this unjust and discriminative act. It means a lot for us. His dad has recovered from COVID. Now Derry hopes he can finally come live with him in Visalia. That was KQED reporter Farida Javala Romero. Scripps Institution of Oceanography is part of a consortium of the country's top ocean research institutions that will deploy 500 new robotic floats in the ocean to collect data about what is going on under the surface as the planet warms. We know how global climate change is affecting us on land with more powerful storms and floods and wildfires, but studies of how global warming is affecting the deep ocean are equally important. And this new initiative, funded with $53 million from the National Science Foundation, could help to transform our understanding of the changes affecting our whole marine ecosystem. As part of the KPBS Climate Change Desk, joining us is Scripps Institution's lead scientist on this project, Lynn Talley. Lynn, welcome to Midday. Oh, glad to be here. So now, Scripps Institution was one of the very first scientific institutions in the world to show the planet was warming when Walter Monk took those ocean readings decades and decades ago. And and since then, there are literally thousands of floating monitors already in place. How is this project taking things a bit further? Yeah, so those floating monitors are measuring its temperature and also salinity. These uh, new instruments that we'll deploy all over the world will measure things like acidity, the pH, Uh, nitrate, which is a nutrient, you need nutrients to live, and oxygen, uh, which is out there. And we'll also be able to measure how much biomass there is. Um, We'll be looking at chlorophyll and particles. So it takes us to the ecosystem and health of the ocean, in addition to what we've already been measuring for heat. Why exactly is that significant? Well, the ocean is 70 odd percent of our planet, isn't it? It's, it's just a huge engine for the way the, the whole earth works <laughs> uh, for its ecosystem and its health. As we pump more and more CO2 into the atmosphere, a fraction of that goes into the ocean. Um, it's about a quarter to a third of it. And the ocean is, is a, a, you could think of it as a great sewer for the extra carbon dioxide. But as that goes into the ocean, it makes it more acidic. And that has a major consequence for the biology that's out there. If the ocean's a little bit more acidic and a little bit warmer, it really interferes with uh, the ecosystem. So how deep will these robots be positioned? Where, where will you put them? Well, they're, um, they go up and down. Um, every 10 days, they go from 2,000 meters, let's see, that's about 6,000 feet down, up to the surface. So it's about half the ocean depth. So that's just like the array that's out there to do heat right now. This adds in um, basically one-fourth of those floats will have these extra sensors. So it's the the upper half of the ocean. 
Are they attached to the bottom? How come they can stay in one place? Oh, <laughs> they're ballasted carefully. They don't stay in one place. They move. Uh, they're, they drift around with the currents, and they basically are parked at one kilometer down, and uh, they move along for nine days or so. And then at the end of the nine days, they go down to two kilometers and then up to the surface. And uh, it's that profile from two kilometers to the surface that we really are looking at. And then they broadcast their data through the satellite. Uh, so we get their position and all the data, and then they go back down again, uh, back down one kilometer deep and just drift along. So we also get sort of a measure of what the currents are at a thousand meters down a, down a kilometer down as they drift. And in some places they move really fast, in some places they just sit there for years. Cool. So now who gets this data and what do they do with it? The data is all public. Um, it comes up through our data management system. Um, we apply some corrections and it heads on over to NOAA. It's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And they handle data management for the U.S. fleet of these fleet of floats. <laughs> um, there's an international organization too. Um, this is an international observing system. And everybody can have the data. And so the data coming out now, they've been coming out for 15 years of temperature and salinity are used by a lot of different um, groups. Um, it's an amazing, huge resource. And for heat and salinity, it goes into all of the computer models that do uh, weather and climate prediction, forecasting, et cetera. These new measurements um, will be matching with the NASA color satellites that look at how much chlorophyll is out in different parts of the world. Expect that fishermen, the industry will be out there, you know, grabbing the data as soon as it comes off. And I understand that some schools can can join in the monitoring and and adopt a float. How will that work? Yes. Uh, so we've been doing this now as a pilot project in the Southern Ocean for the last five six years, and each of our floats has gone in with a school uh, that's adopted the float. We have curriculum. You can attach a cool name to the float. One of them's like Tater Tot, or you can have one um, named after your favorite teacher or whoever. And the group that's at sea putting the um, floats in, there's always somebody out there who just loves to take your drawings from your class and they'll transfer them over to the float and your float gets pictures and it goes down. And then we're in, we're in contact with, the, with your teacher and your class uh, through the whole process. And then you can uh, follow your float for years, uh, get the data off and graph it up and use it for science, science fair, science projects in, in class. And when will this project actually begin? Well, um, we're hoping that the for this brand new increment, um, the large global increment, uh, we'll be deploying, putting our first floats into the ocean probably around hopefully March or April next year. We have to order and start ordering all the parts and putting the floats together. There are some bits and pieces to get started on, and then we'll be in full production by the end of a year. So we'll be putting out about 100 floats a year all over the world, different different research cruises everywhere. Very cool. We've been speaking with Lynn Talley, who is one of the co-principal investigators of the Global Ocean Biogeochemistry Project. Lynn, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. 
That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. This will be a Thanksgiving like no other for many people. The spike in COVID cases across the country means the usual travel and family gatherings will not be happening. Americans are devising all sorts of imaginative ways to spend the holiday, using technology to bring family together virtually, but it's left many people with the realization that if they want a home-cooked Thanksgiving dinner, they're going to have to make it themselves and some for the first time in their lives. Joining me with some first turkey tips is San Diego freelance food writer, Karen Golden. And Karen, welcome back. Thanks, Maureen. It's good to be back with you. If you generally travel to relatives at Thanksgiving, you may never have had the experience of putting together a Thanksgiving dinner. So what's the first thing you need to do to get organized? Maybe a list? You need a list. You need a calendar um, because the, the trick to all of this is preparation and knowing when you're going to do all the tasks that need to be done. A lot of this has to do with just how many dishes you're going to make and what dishes you're going to make. So you need to go to the market. You need to do food prep. You even need to know when you're going to set the table. Um, And having a little calendar in which you can just put down, okay, at this time I need to be doing this. At this time, someone else in the household needs to do that. That makes it so that you don't have to think about it. You don't have to tear your hair out at the last minute because, you know, you didn't turn on the oven at 10 o'clock in the morning to put a pie in so that you could get the turkey in by 1130, that kind of thing. So. You have to start at the end and work backward. Now, if only two or three people are going to be at your Thanksgiving table, how big a turkey should you get? Well, it depends on whether you want leftovers and how many. And remember that a big turkey is nice, but you cannot freeze cooked turkey bones. It's poisonous. So you don't want to do that. So whatever you do, you're going to have to strip all the bones anyway. But if you can get an eight to 10 pound turkey, then you have hit, you know, gold because everybody is looking for smaller turkeys because of the pandemic. So try and find eight to 10. You're not going to find smaller. On the other hand, there's nothing saying you have to have a whole turkey. You could have whatever pieces that you enjoy best. Maybe you get a turkey breast or maybe everyone loves the dark meat. So you get the dark meat and some wings if that's how you want to roll. And there's nothing saying you have to have turkey. Um, You could get a beautiful chicken and roasted chicken. So there are a lot of options, but smaller is best also because it depends on how many side dishes you're going to be serving. And you'd be amazed at 
how meant, how much people eat the sides and nibble on the turkey. What are some typical newbie mistakes that Thanksgiving cooks make? There are, are several. One is taking on too many dishes, especially if they haven't made them before. My feeling is that while Thanksgiving is typically the best potluck meal of the year, if you're not going to have other people in the, you know, bringing dishes to the house, reduce the number of dishes that you make and buy things that you want. So have a couple that you love to make, and then the rest don't feel guilty about buying them pre-made. It's fine. The other is cooking way too much food because people don't eat nearly as much as we think they do. And if you want to have leftovers, then do it for leftovers. The other is not planning well enough. You need time to shop and to prep and to cook, and you need to have space for storage, both the freezer and the fridge. You need to think about what serving dishes you have uh, for what you're making. Are you going to clean while you cook um, between courses to make room? Do you need to have ice and go out and get ice? And do you have a place to store it? It's like a choreography. You need to have all of that thought out to make it much easier. And finally, you need to make sure that you correctly time whatever it is that needs to be in the oven. Really break apart, take apart the meal and the components of the meal and figure out how it needs to be done. Now you have a suggestion for a perfectly cooked turkey that works especially well with smaller birds. Can you tell us about it? It's got a weird name. Yeah, it has a weird name. It's called spatchcocking, which apparently is an Irish, old Irish term that goes back to um, dispatching of the bird. Um, it's a very simple, straightforward thing. I've tried so many ways of making turkey and had so many fails. This is foolproof. And what you're going to do is take your turkey, your eight to 10 or 12 pound turkey, and cut down the backbone. Most people say cut off the backbone, that's easier. I kind of like cooking the backbone. So if you're going to take it off, you know, keep it and maybe cook that to roast that too. But what you do is you cut out the backbone and flatten the turkey and then straighten it out and put it at a level in which you have physical body leverage with the heels of your palms to be able to push down on the breast of the turkey. The idea is to break the breastbone so it lies completely flat. And then what you'll do is you'll season it. You can, at that point, if you do it a day before, you can brine it if you like brining. Otherwise, just uh, get a large baking sheet that has a rim, put foil on top, and put the bird on the foil, and first upside down, so that you can season the underneath and then flip it over and season the top. You're going to have very even cooking. You're not going to worry about whether the breast is cooked before, you know, the thigh, the skin will all be nice and crispy. It's just, it's miraculous. It's wonderful. How long does it take to cook that way? It depends on the size of the um, turkey, but I found that I cook it at 450. I season it like with garlic, salt and paprika. I rub in some oil. You could use melted butter, squeeze some fresh lemon juice. You can use any spices that you want. 
and put it in for about an hour and 20 minutes and don't baste it. It doesn't need basting. And then pull the turkey out of the oven and measure its temperature with a meat thermometer. And the breast should hit 150 degrees. The thigh should be 165. If you've hit that, turn off the oven, pull the turkey out and lightly tent it with some foil so that it can rest. If it's not at those temperatures, put it back in the oven, try again in five minutes. And ideally, you want to let it rest at least 20 minutes before you carve it. And finally, Karen, your advice, if I understand it, is that people, you know, who are thinking about putting together their Thanksgiving dinner and maybe aren't too familiar with how to do it, should really start buying their Thanksgiving dinner ingredients this week and not wait until next week. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I Every time I go to the market, I, I have my list and I pick up things that I think I need that I have space for. I'm not going to get a turkey now because um, I don't have room. I'll order a turkey now that I can pick up a day or two before Thanksgiving. But yeah, um, you know, depending on what kind of of stuffing you make or uh, mashed potatoes, you'd be surprised. You could buy your potatoes for mashed potatoes. You could make the mashed potatoes. You can put them in the freezer and then the day before let it defrost and then heat it up in a microwave. It will be perfectly good. It's something my mother has been doing for years. We do the same, do the same with a grain salad. Buy, if you're going to make a farro salad with roasted vegetables, you can roast the vegetables ahead of time. So go and buy the vegetables you need now. It's just less stuff to worry about and less competition for all the same foods that everyone is getting if you start now. Exactly. Well, I've been speaking with San Diego freelance food writer, Karen Golden. Karen, thank you very much. It's very helpful and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Maureen. Happy Thanksgiving to you too. It's no surprise that you might find good Mexican food in the Imperial Valley east of San Diego. But what about Chinese food? What about Chinese-Mexican food? In 2015, reporter Lisa Morehouse traveled to both sides of the border to dig up the history behind Baja Fusion. The Salcedo family sits in a coveted booth at the Fortune Garden restaurant in the city of El Centro. Myra Salcedo, her sister Marta Kramer, their mom and other sister are almost drooling, waiting for their food to arrive. We come all the way from Yuma, like twice a month just to eat here. That's Yuma, Arizona, over an hour away. A huge side order comes. Light yellow, deep-fried chilies. It's a dish I've never seen. We always order the chili, but my sisters, she eats them all. (laughs) And their next order comes. The salt and pepper fish. It's like red fish. Sort of like a Baja-style fish. The the chili peppers and onion and stuff like that. Baja-style at a Chinese restaurant? Us, it's like a, a fusion, Mexican ingredients with the Chinese. It's very different than if you go to any other Chinese, Americanized Chinese restaurant. And there's a reason for this fusion, one that dates back over 130 years. I'll get to that history a little later. And so, yeah, you just mix it. For now, I leave the Salcedo family as they carefully mix Chinese mustard, a little spicy sriracha, and ketchup into a special, only an Imperial Valley dipping sauce for barbecue pork. When they order, they don't say barbecue pork. They say carnita. Yeah. 
Canita Colorado. My name is Janessa Chao. Uh, I mean, my husband owns the Fortune Garden. <laughs> Zhao came to the U.S. from southern China, her husband Carlos from Mexicali, where he worked in Chinese restaurants. In the Fortune Garden kitchen, the cooks speak to each other in Cantonese, the waiters speak Spanish and English. You can see every table they have lemon. Hot sauce, Chinese food, you don't eat lemon, right? Those fried yellow chilies on almost every table, chili asado, they're served in a lemon sauce with lots of salt, kind of a margarita flavor. If you believe the rumors, some chefs marinate pork in tequila, and they serve pato asado, roast duck, with lots of cilantro. The restaurants that you see now are kind of the remnant of the Chinese population that used to fill the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in Mexicali and in Baja, California. Robert Chow Romero is a professor at UCLA. He teaches in both the Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies departments. Chinese started to go to Mexico after the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in the United States. In 1882, the Chinese were the first ethnic group specifically singled out and banned from entry into the U.S., So tens of thousands went to Cuba, South America, and Mexico. The Chinese invented undocumented immigration from Mexico, smuggling with coyotes. Guides hired to lead people across the border. And smuggling with false papers and in boats and in trains. The infrastructure for that was all invented by by the Chinese. In fact, today's border patrol grew out of the mounted guard of Chinese inspectors. Many Chinese immigrants settled in Mexicali, becoming grocers, merchants, and restaurant owners. Others managed to smuggle across and make lives in the U.S., including Imperial County. A block from the border in Calexico, California, George Lim pulls up in a big truck. So how do you like our fair city? And drives a few minutes. We're at the international border, crossing into Mexicali. He lives in the U.S., but helps run one of the oldest and most grand Chinese restaurants in Mexicali, called El Dragon. There, he goes by Jorge Lim. Why not have a restaurant in the U.S.? I mean, population here, about a million. Imperial County's population is about 170,000. So just doing the math is, I mean, it's plain simple that you can have a lot more customers here in Mexico, and... I hate to say this, but people in uh, Mexico are more sophisticated. They're in the Imperial Valley about Chinese food. That sophistication may come from the decades of people eating Chinese food here with some Mexican flavors. Seventy years ago, it was a necessity. Chinese cooks used Mexican ingredients like chilies, jicama, and certain cuts of meat because that was what was available. Now it's part of a culinary legacy like this new dish on the menu. Arrachera, which is the best meat for uh, tacos. Beef served with asparagus and black bean sauce. The meat's clearly Mexican. Asparagus uh, could be both Chinese and, and Mexican, but the sauce, the black bean, that's Chinese. And in a kind of Mexican-Chinese-American hybrid, there's an egg roll with shrimp, cilantro, and cream cheese. It seems like it shouldn't be good, but it is. And this is the only place I've ever seen avocado in fried rice. That was Lisa Morehouse reporting from the Imperial Valley. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. 
Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.